0: Welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips, and this is episode 7, He Never Changes His Mind. This week, I'll be talking about the great philosopher Parmenides. Parmenides was born sometime in the late 6th century BCE, the year 540 according to Diogenes Laertius, and the year 515 according to Plato and scholars aren't fully convinced about the accuracy of either date, but it is quite certain that he was born and raised in the Greek settlement of Elia, on the west coast of modern-day Italy. Not much is known about Parmenides' life, but supposedly Parmenides was a second-generation colonist from Ionia, and his father was a wealthy aristocrat. Parmenides is believed to have lived around the time of Heraclitus, and to have published his work after Heraclitus did, A fragment of Parmenides' book references Heraclitus, but there are no fragments of Heraclitus' book that reference Parmenides or his theories, and if Heraclitus had read Parmenides, he probably would have had something to say. Parmenides has the title of Father of Metaphysics because he was the first philosopher known to have investigated the nature of existence, looking beyond the physical world to the underlying concept of existence itself. He is also regarded as early Greek philosophy's most profound and challenging thinker. He was the first published philosopher who proved their point through the use of a valid logical argument, instead of just stating it or providing examples. He rules out alternatives or shows the impossibility of certain statements in order to reach and support his conclusion. Crazy, huh? In his book, History of Greek Philosophy, William Casey Guthrie writes: Pre-Socratic philosophy is divided into two halves by the name of Parmenides. His exceptional powers of reasoning brought speculation about the origin and constitution of the universe to a halt, and caused it to make a fresh start on different lines. Parmenides is the founder of the Eleatic school of thought, and he wrote one surviving work, a poem supposedly called On Nature like many of the other pre-Socratic works I've discussed so far. Whatever it was originally called, portions of the text have survived through quotations by later authors. It's estimated that the poem had about 800 verses, of which 160 have been preserved until today. The poem was divided into three sections, Proem, or Prelude, Reality, and Opinion. The poem describes the journey of a young man traveling to find a goddess in search of a revelation regarding wisdom, and this section follows the pattern of many traditional Greek religious or mythological tales. The rest of the poem is narrated by the goddess, as she shares the words of wisdom the man was searching for. The section on reality takes the reader step by step through a valid philosophical argument. This section is actually the most well-preserved of the three, because it was the most useful for later philosophers trying to understand Parmenides' philosophical theories. The third and final section of the poem, Opinion, provides an account that is supposed to represent the common view of appearances and reality, which is, of course, false. However, this section does contain some true claims. For example, that the moon gets its light from the sun, Very little of this section was preserved, some estimate it's around 10% of the original text, so that makes it rather difficult to get an accurate picture of what Parmenides wrote, and how he intended it to be interpreted. The poem as a whole was designed to be cohesive and present one unified thesis about the world and reality, unlike Heraclitus' collection of somewhat unconnected thoughts. Parmenides actually presents an argument to prove his thesis in a logical way. Nevertheless, it seems that Parmenides's work has always been challenging to understand. Even Plato doubted that the full depth of its meaning could be grasped, and he was a clever guy who had access to the complete original work. But scholars today persist in trying to puzzle out the proper interpretation based on the fragments passed down and the commentaries provided by other philosophers. The longest fragment of Parmenides's work, Fragment 8, contains 62 verses. The first 52 verses of this fragment were transcribed by Simplicius in the 6th century CE, who remarked that one of the reasons he chose to transcribe such a lengthy section was because copies of Parmenides's treatise were scarce. Simplicius preserved what is believed to be the entirety of Parmenides' central argument for the illusory nature of concepts such as creation and destruction, one of the most important aspects of his work. So thank you, Simplicius. I will read a portion of this argument from fragment 8. I'll read 28 of the 62 verses. Only one story of a path remains, that it is. On this there are signs, a great many, that being without origin, it is also indestructible, whole, of one kind, unwavering and complete. Nor used it to be, nor will it be, since now it is together entire, one, continuous. For what birth will you discover for it? Increased how, and from where? Not from non-being shall I permit you to say, nor to think for it is not sayable nor thinkable that it is not, but what need would have impelled it, later rather than earlier, to develop beginning from nothing? Thus it is essential that it either absolutely be or not, nor will the force of belief allow for anything else to arise from what is besides itself." For this reason, justice does not relax the fetters to free it either to begin or to cease, but keeps it, and the crux about these lies in this. Is it, or isn't it? But the verdict has been given, as it had to be, to let go the latter option unthought and unnamed, for it is not a true path, but judge the other to be, and to be genuine." AND HOW COULD WHAT IS BE LATER DESTROYED, AND HOW WOULD IT ARISE, FOR IF IT ONCE ARISES IT IS NOT, NOR IF SOMETIME IT IS GOING TO BE, SO DEVELOPMENT IS EXTINGUISHED AND DESTRUCTION SILENCED, FOR NOTHING ELSE EITHER IS OR WILL BE, BESIDES WHAT IS, SINCE FATE HAS FETTERED IT TO BE WHOLE AND MOTIONLESS. To this, all names are to be referred, the names that mortals have laid down believing them to be authentic, coming to be and passing away, being and not being, and changing place and switching through bright color. Parmenides' central theory is that what we perceive as reality and such things as motion, birth, death, and change are all illusory. We think we see movement and we believe that things can be created and destroyed, but the truth is that everything is stationary and unchanging. Bad news for physicists who have made a living off of studying the dynamics of the world. So how does Parmenides reach this unorthodox conclusion? He starts by describing the property of things which are, which have being, which exist without origin. According to Parmenides, these are of one kind. For this statement, Parmenides has often been thought to have been advocating true monism, the belief that everything shares a oneness, or that reality consists of only this one kind of thing, like how some people interpret Thales to a belief that all matter ultimately consists of water. Parmenides also says that this being, or kind, is indestructible, continuous, unwavering or unchanging, whole and without origin, so it is, has been, and will be the same for infinite time. Parmenides goes on to say that it can't have come from nothing or non-being. This is because non-being, or not-to-be for Shakespeareans, is an unintelligible and nonsensical concept which is not sayable nor thinkable. After all, you can't refer to something that doesn't exist. The name of that thing would be empty and meaningless. Now, you may be thinking, it's kinda obvious that we can think of and talk about things that don't exist. For example, unicorns, or my pet penguin Zaza. These do exist as concepts, even if they aren't physically real. What Parmenides probably means is something more along the lines of how it's impossible to form an idea or concept of non-being. What is non-existence? Can you imagine it? Can you know it? We, who live in a world of only existing things, can't meaningfully discuss or think of things that are not. Since you can't conceive of non-being, Parmenides argues that you can't logically conceive of anything that has the concept of non-being as part of its definition. Basically, things inherit the meaninglessness of this more fundamental concept. Thus, it's impossible to have meaningful conceptions of creation and destruction. To be specific, this is creation from nothingness and total annihilation into nothingness, not just the creation or destruction of matter into energy. This is logically consistent with the rest of Parmenides' argument, and it's actually consistent with the first law of thermodynamics, also known as the law of conservation of energy, which states that energy cannot be either created or destroyed, it can only change forms. So good work Parmenides! since the first law of thermodynamics wouldn't be formulated for another 2,300 years. The Ionians and Heraclitus wrote about becoming, or birth, and about the related topics of growth and death as if they were natural processes. How foolish they were, thought Parmenides. After all, there are only two possible forms or methods of creation. One, something is created from something which already exists. But Parmenides rules this out because it's not proper creation. It's more like a reconstruction of elements or of matter. Two, something is created from something which does not exist. But what does not exist must have this problematic, meaningless concept of non-being. So this method is impossible. Since these are the only possible methods of creation, and the first isn't really creation at all, and the second is impossible. The logical conclusion is that creation is impossible. Therefore, what exists now was not born, and, by a similar argument, will never die. Which brings us good news: we are all immortal, at least, in some sense. A good question for those who are more physicsy or astronomy minded is, what does this mean for the Big Bang? What was there before the Big Bang, if not nothingness? Since creation from that is impossible, according to Parmenides and the First Law of Thermo. It has often been thought that there was a singularity, the aptly named initial singularity, a point with infinite gravity that contained all the energy and space-time of the universe. It would have been the center of the biggest, baddest, and best black hole of all time, but, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's no direct evidence that there was such a singularity. Though the cosmic microwave background, the observable radiation in space which remains from the early universe, shows that the universe began in a very hot and dense state. So this singularity theory is not ruled out by cosmological experiments even though it's not verified. Another theory is that our universe was a series of spatial dimensions with a different time dimension, and that the Big Bang changed time into the standard one dimensional form we know of. The mechanics of this would be quite complex, and there's actually a lot of debate as to the nature of time in our current universe. So this is not a super popular theory. More recently, not that the other theories are particularly old big bang cosmology has only been around for a little less than a hundred years but more recent models have sought to incorporate quantum mechanics with theories like loop quantum gravity which sounds like the name of a physics party trick but is so much more than that where the randomness inherent in quantum mechanical laws gives rise to quantum fluctuations that cause the universe to expand Quantum mechanics actually provides a response to a part of Parmenides' argument. In fragment 8, which I quoted earlier, Parmenides writes, What need would have impelled it later rather than earlier to develop, beginning from nothing? When nothing exists, there is no way to distinguish between one point of time and another, and no reason for something to develop now or ever, What was so special about that point approximately 13.8 billion years ago that sparked the Big Bang? This is a question people have been asking for a while. With quantum mechanics, maybe there didn't need to be anything special about that point at all. Time doesn't have the same meaning in the quantum realm as it ordinarily does to us so this could open up different avenues than we or Parmenides could have considered for the origin of the universe. Interestingly, some recent models also predict cycles of a new universe being created after an old one is destroyed, similar to the Phoenix model of the universe that would be attributed to Heraclitus, as I mentioned last episode. Another theory is that our universe is one of many in a multiverse, and that it split off from an earlier universe through the Big Bang as a result of quantum fluctuation. Since cosmological experiments can't see that far back in time, this is still a hot topic that's been exploding in popularity a bit recently. Returning to Parmenides, I want to say a few things about his theory of the impossibility of movement. Parmenides thought that movement was also an illusion, because for something to move, it has to move into empty space. But empty space has non-being, since to be empty, it must contain nothing. Thus, the concept of empty space is meaningless, and empty space can't really exist. Therefore, movement is impossible. I don't know about you, but I find this conclusion a little harder to accept than the one about creation and destruction. Parmenides does follow a logical pattern that leads him to his conclusion, but I don't see if he rules out or just misses the alternative theory of displacement. Things could move by pushing away other things and taking their place, like my hands pushing air out of their paths as I wave them about. Movement could simply be things shifting around, like the universe is one giant slide puzzle. However, to be fair to Parmenides, he lived before Democritus, who first put forth the theory of atoms, and before Archimedes, who recognized the principle of buoyancy through water displacement, in his famous sitting in a bathtub and then running through the street shouting Eureka moment. Parmenides stuck to his conclusion that movement is impossible, which also led him towards the impossibility of things like change. If you can't move, you can't grow or do any multitude of things we take for granted in our perception of reality. Though we seem to experience them, the truth, at least according to Parmenides, is that they are all part of a big illusion. In his book Pre-Socratics, Cambridge professor of ancient philosophy James Warren wrote that Parmedides presented an odd and alienating picture of reality. Following consistently the ban on what is not, it has turned out that we are left with an unfamiliar reality, which leaves no room for change, plurality, motion, difference, people, days, or nights. Nevertheless, Parmenides was very influential, he's credited as the person who introduced the idea of a logical proof, arguing through reason rather than the senses, because the senses, of course, are faulty, and reason, or logos, is the best path to the truth, and of utilizing deductive logic to validly prove the conclusion. Parmenides was also one of the first rationalists, since he placed greater trust in reason than in the senses. He believed that reason better reflected reality, despite how counterintuitive some of its conclusions might seem to be. Parmenides had a particular influence on Plato, who proposed two realms of reality, an unchanging realm of being, the realm of forms, that can only be understood through reason, and the constantly changing realm of becoming, which we observe through our senses. In this way, Plato unified the theory of Parmenides with that of Heraclitus. Before I conclude this episode, I want to take a little side trip into the topic of time. As I mentioned earlier, the nature of time is still debated, but there's one theory in particular which I think Parmenides would have been a fan of. Eternalism also known as block universe theory where the passage of time is an illusion in fact eternalism is sometimes called the Parmenidean position according to this theory all points of time are equally real and existent space-time is an unchanging four-dimensional block that contains everything in the universe at all times so there are the three spatial dimensions we are all familiar with, essentially length, width, and height, plus a complete temporal dimension, similar to these spatial dimensions. It's easiest to visualize as a box, ignoring one of the spatial dimensions, since four dimensions is really, really hard for us 3D creatures to picture. So, imagine a box where two of its dimensions are spatial, It has height and width and one temporal dimension. Basically, it's a flip book. So the bigger picture of block universe theory is this giant flip book showing how our 3d world changes over time. All of the pages exist and even though we can only move in one direction through time and feel like it's passing, it's actually just there extending out like the spatial dimension to the left and right of us. The block of space-time is complete, continuous, and unwavering, just like Parmenides' concept of being. Now, this isn't how we ordinarily think of time. Generally, we divide time into three parts, the past, the present, and the future. We think the past is fixed and that the future is uncertain and depends on the present, the moment we are living in and the decisions we are making in it, like whatever you are doing while listening to this podcast, and deciding to take the time to listen to this podcast. Our actions now affect the future, and time moves in only one direction. It's on a straight march from the past, through the present, and into the future. Some people have argued for the view known as presentism, in which only the present moment exists. The past and future are just useful concepts used to describe the ever-changing present, but they don't actually exist. The past is gone, and the future is not yet created. This position isn't very popular nowadays, particularly because it conflicts with the theory of relativity, which has actually been tested and verified by every experiment thrown at it over the past century. Relativity has this caveat, which is part of why it's called relativity, and that is that it doesn't permit there to be a universal present, a present moment that's the same for all things at all places in the universe. Suppose an event, like me dropping a pen, happens at a point in time I would call the present. Now, I can look at a clock and mark that time as the moment when I drop the pen, but me and my clock are sitting at or on my table in my frame of reference. For someone in a different frame of reference, for example, someone in a rocket flying somewhere above me, they could also observe the event, theoretically anyway, but they would observe the event at a different time depending on how fast they're moving and some other variables. If the time I read on my clock and the time the rocket person reads on theirs are different, then who's to say which time is right? What if we're both right? There's no physical basis for a superior or absolute frame of reference that is always preferred and could define a universal present. So, if you accept relativity theory, it doesn't make sense to claim that only the present moment exists, because there could be a huge variety of present moments from different people's frames of reference. It's very hard, impossible, many philosophers would say, to reconcile presentism with relativity theory, and relativity theory is much more widely accepted and believed. So presentism is kind of a dying theory. Many philosophers have argued that relativity leads to an eternalist or block universe conception of time. But if you don't like eternalism, then there's another alternative that provides a bit of an in-between it and presentism, growing block universe theory. This is often held to be the most commonsensical theory. According to growing block universe theory, The past and present exist, but the future does not. As time moves forward, the present changes and brings another slice of space-time into existence, thereby growing the 4D block universe. Some people have argued against this theory on the grounds that it doesn't provide any distinction between past and present, so we have no way of knowing if we are living in the true present at the edge of the growing space-time, or if we are living in the past and only thinking it's the present, in which case we're in basically the same boat as we would be with the eternalist complete block universe. There's no real advantage to growing block universe theory unless it can show that we are living at or near the edge of the growing block universe, in a way that can be reconciled with the theory of relativity. This is a tricky problem, but there is a counter-argument, which brings in the philosophy of mind, by saying that consciousness can only occur in the present at the edge of the block. The past exists, but it is dead and void of any sentience. Like a video preserved on film, the actors were at one moment consciously performing their actions, but there is no consciousness in those actors recorded on the film itself. The nature of consciousness is another open question being studied by scientists and philosophers, so this is by no means the final word on theories of time. Hopefully, I'll have the time to discuss this again later on in the podcast. Whether the future episodes currently exist or not, we'll have to wait to find out what they hold. But I can tell you that the next episode will focus on Parmenides' most immediate successors, the Eliadics specifically on Zeno of Elia. Remember, you can check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca. Also, if you want to know what theory of time I believe in, you can slide into the podcast DMs on Facebook or Twitter. Just search at histphilphyspod, or you can send me an email at histphilphyspod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe.